We're continuing our series on Advent, and this is our third in this series, and what we've been focusing on is the incarnation, that theological term where God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we talked about what that is generally in the first talk. Last week, we spoke about the necessity of Jesus being a man for our sake, identifying with us and being able to then satisfy the need that God has for holiness on our behalf. And this week, we're going to be talking about the deity of Christ. Why is it that Jesus had to be God? If you have a copy of the scriptures, open them to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll begin. And at first, what I want to do is kind of look at some of the basic things that we need to understand about what the scriptures say, and that Jesus was indeed God in human flesh, but we're not going to spend our whole time trying to present that case. I want to ask ourselves, why? So what? What does this mean to us? And so Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews writes, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. And so here the writer of Hebrews gives us this discourse about Jesus how he is the complete and final revelation of God. In the past, God spoke to us in various ways through prophets, but in these last days, in the culmination, in the completion, he has spoken to us through his son. And then he gives this incredible description of who Jesus is when he says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He is God stamped into human flesh. You know those signet rings that they used to have where they have the wax and they melt it on the envelope and then you take the ring from the emperor or whatever and you press it onto the wax and there on the wax is the impression of that ring that the emperor has. Well, Jesus is God's representation stamped in human flesh. And he tells us that by him, he made the universe and the word universe here isn't the word cosmos. The word universe is kind of everything. It has to do with he is the creator of all that we can see, all that we know of time and space. And it's through Jesus that he's created all these things. And so what that is meaning is because he made the universe, he has claim on it, which then presents us with the curious 
understanding if he made everything, he also has claim on us. But we have mixed feelings when you say, well, God has claim on you. It's like, no, I'm autonomous. I've got to be me. You know, we want our, our freedom, but God gives us our freedom. But there's an understanding that he is the creator. And so it's very clear in scripture, these things about Jesus. In John chapter 14, verses eight and nine, Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? And so we see Jesus clearly states, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And as he speaks of the Father, he's speaking of our heavenly Father. And you see, Jesus is God speaking to us in the language of our humanity. Jesus is God speaking to us in a language that we can understand. Have you ever text someone or maybe they text you and you know how you can't read emotion in texts? And so, you know, you're supposed to meet a group of people for dinner and you get a text from your wife that says, are you coming? <laughs> what does she mean? Well, if you're frazzled and you're busy and you read that text and it says, are you coming? You can read it like, well, are you coming? But maybe she's saying, oh, are you coming? How do you know? You, there's a misunderstanding because you don't have the interaction. All you've got is the words. And you need a more clear expression. I remember when Corinne and I were dating... I think I, I've told you this story. There was a, a week where she was exceptionally distant from me. It seems like she wasn't answering my phone calls and we didn't have cell phones then. They were the landlines. And so you were expected to hover around the phone for periods of times so that people could be in touch with you. Or if you did call, you were expected to return the call because how else would we know if you're alive or not? I don't know how we functioned without cell phones for so long. It's a miracle. But I remember there was one week she was especially distant from me. And so me in my mind and curiosity was thinking, she doesn't like me anymore. She's, she's done. She's going to break up with me. And I started playing this in my head. And it just started going around. That's it. She's done. Okay. She wants to break up with me. Okay. Fine. I'll break up with her. I'll show her. I'm not going to be broken up with her. And I remember I was supposed to go pick her up and I was thinking, this is it. She's done with me. She's been so elusive, so distant. Something's wrong. I know it's wrong. And I remember my car broke down. That's why she doesn't like me because I don't have a car that runs. I, I just had all these things going on in my head. And finally I call her and I said, well, my car broke down. I got to fix the battery and this. And, and she goes, okay, all right, I'll be here. She didn't sound very empathetic. She sounded like oh, she didn't care. And so I get there to the house, I walk in, and all these people are there, and they go, surprise, she threw a surprise party for me. 
here I am in my emo self, all worried about me, and the reason she's so distant is because she's making plans for my surprise party. And there was a misunderstanding because my perspective was one of worry because how can someone so pretty be interested in me? You know, and, and so I was so focused on the fact that she, she's going to get rid of me. I know that's it, that I missed everything that was going on. And, and so many times if our perspective of God is wrong, it throws everything we believe and understand or interpret in Scripture incorrectly and you see what jesus does is he helps us to see who god really is how does god really think what does god really feel you see the idea of god is so vast that's why i had the whole universe kind of background there my creative self you know just trying to express how do we understand a God who is beyond our ability to comprehend? How can I know what is the heart of God? But you see, Jesus is God speaking to us in the language of our humanity in a way that we can clearly understand. And the reason it's necessary for Jesus to be God is so that we can really know who God is. Without Jesus, it's a text without smiley faces, without winks, without okays. It's void of the emotion that we need to have clarity and understanding. And so what I want to do is look at some of the passages where we see how God reacts to situations situations that we might find ourselves in to give us the right perspective and the right understanding. And so we're going to go through a few scriptures here. Turn to John chapter 8. And I want to talk about how does God deal with our sin? I mean, let's face it. That's one of the things that has been predominantly presented Throughout the church, it's kind of sin management. We would have the idea that God is just about getting rid of those bad things you do. That's all God cares about. And if you do something bad, God wants to deal with you. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above, he's looking down in love. But be careful, little eyes, what you see. What is the impression you get from that? Is it really that God is lovingly going, oh, I just love you? Or is it, I better watch out? Maybe it's my guilt, but for me, it's like, oh no, God's watching. Be careful. What I, oh no, I looked at something. Don't, don't hurt me, God. I know you're looking down in love, but oh, what do I hear? Oh no. Anyway, that's the impression I get with a lot of the things that we present, that God is about sin management. He's about stopping you from doing wrong things. And that's his concern. And when he catches you, he's going to deal with you. How does he deal with us? What is the heart of God in the moments of sin? And so John chapter 8, starting at verse 1. 
But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. We get a snapshot into the heart of God in this place. And we have to set the scenario up so that we can fully understand this story. First of all, we know it was a trap. And you have to think, what are the chances that Jesus is going to be in the temple and we're going to just happen to catch a couple in the act of adultery right at the time that Jesus is in the temple so that we can get her there in time to bring this accusation to them. Now, why were they doing this in the first place? Well, Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with these people and what they were trying to do was deal with Jesus and his caring for these people. They were trying to get a wedge and discredit him in the eyes of the people so that they would stop following after him. What they didn't care about was this woman. What they didn't care about was trying to bring restoration. What they did care about was finding a way that they could trick Jesus. And so they use this example and they take it out of context because they weren't just supposed to stone her, there was supposed to be a man involved. Because as far as I know, adultery back then is very much similar to how it is today. You need two people. But where's the guy? He's not there. Now you have to understand that aspect. But more importantly, I want you to imagine the worst thing you have ever done. And your moment before God is going to be in the most shameful moment of your life. This woman, in all likelihood, was naked. She was humiliated. She was set up. She was entrapped. And then she was drugged out and put before the Son of God. And if you had to make one moment in representation before God, imagine if it was your worst moment. And how would you feel? 
And so they keep pressuring Jesus. The law says, the law says, this is what the scriptures teach, Jesus. This is what we have the perspective that God wants. Okay, God in flesh, tell us, what do you really want? What do you care about? We need to deal with this adultery. We need to deal with this sin. And Jesus doesn't answer them. And so they pressure him and they pressure him and they pressure him till he finally stands up. Let the one who's without sin cast the first stone and then he goes back down and something about those words resonated in them and they started to disperse from the oldest to the youngest till finally it's just Jesus and this woman in all her shame and he says woman where are your accusers does no one condemn you and she says no one And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, what is the focus of this story? Is it go and leave your life of sin? But you'll see many times that's what the church will try and focus on. See, Jesus said, go and leave your life of sin. Go and leave it. The focus of this story is that God did not condemn this woman. It doesn't mean that there aren't repercussions for sin. But the heart of this story is that God is not here to condemn us. In fact, what you'll see more often than anything is that when we condemn others, we are least like God. John 3, 16 and 17, scripture most well known. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He goes on in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The intention of God isn't to condemn, it's to save. Isn't it amazing that the religious leaders, those who are supposed to represent God, could care less about this woman and her shame and the humiliation. All they wanted to do was prove themselves right. All they wanted to do is make their stance and discredit Jesus. They could care less about her. What is it about the human condition that cares more about proving others wrong than helping to restore them? What is it about the church that kills its wounded, humiliates them, and makes a sign for others and uses people to establish what they want to promote? When we are condemning, we are least like God. You see, the safest place for you, for me, and for this woman in all her shame is at the feet of Jesus. The safest place for you and wherever you find yourself is before a God who's not there to condemn you, but is desiring that you be restored. What about the sin? What about the sin? We reap what we sow. Our sin will find us out. Where do you go when it does? God is saying, 
come to me. You can come to me. But God, you don't know what I've done. It's terrible. It's awful. If people only knew. And he says, I know I don't condemn you. And God is there to give us mercy. Why is it that we do not have the representation of God? And why do we misrepresent God by condemning people so much? And so people lie, they try to hide their sin because they're so worried about what other people will think when God knows and God doesn't condemn but is constantly bringing them back. And and throughout this time and these talks, I find myself as a father thinking about how I deal with my children. I have learned more about who God is by being a father than just about anything. The scriptures have become alive to me as I understand my relationship with my kids. And my kids have sinned. Anyone surprised? All our kids have sinned. Whether it was stealing the cookies from the cookie jar or other things. And when I get that phone call or I find out that information, my heart breaks because that's my child who I love and I want to do what is necessary and what I can to try and bring healing and restoration and wholeness to them. I I want them to move from this place of brokenness to this place of wholeness and I will never get them there with condemnation. And so you need to understand, how does God deal with our sin? Well, he's not condemning you. You see, you and I are condemned already. John 3.18 says that. That's why he sent his son, is because we are already condemned. And we need the Savior. We need the salvation. And so no matter how bad you've blown it, the safest place for you or for any sinner is at the foot of Jesus, is before the God who created you. He has claim to you, and he still wants you even in that broken state. See, how do, you, how do you present God more clearly and more beautifully than this expression when it deals with the area of sin? Well, what about anger? I mean, God is upset. I know God gets angry. So what's God get angry at? Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Verses 12 through 16. Jesus is at the temple. Uh, Okay. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him and the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked? Yes, replied Jesus. 
Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. And so, if I were to think of the things that would make God angry, again, going back to the things that I've heard, I would think, well, God would get angry at the woman caught in adultery. God would be mad there. Or at the cross, at least. If anyone's going to be mad, it would be at the time where they're crucifying. But instead, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's not what I would do. I would say, God, they know what they're doing. Get them. But Jesus doesn't get angry at the cross. He doesn't get angry at the woman caught in adultery. But here he gets upset. Why is he so upset? Why why is he so indignant here? In one of the gospels, it says that he made a whip of cords. And, And again, imagine this scene. There's all these people They're in the outer court of the temple and Jesus goes and he starts overthrowing the tables. The doves are flying. The money's going everywhere. And he clears the place and then all of a sudden these people who are sick and lame start coming there and the children start running around singing and they're having a great time because whenever there's chaos, kids feel right at home. (laughs) And they make this chaos a time of worship. Well, to get a full understanding of what's taking place here, we're going to go to a couple of passages. First is Isaiah 56. And you need to understand, too, that what was taking place here is the religious leaders were making money on worship. If you wanted to come and worship, you needed to buy their stuff. You needed to get an exchange from your unclean heathen money to the temple coins, and the exchange rate wasn't good. Where you could buy a dove for, you know, this many denarii here, it cost you double to get it with the temple coin. And you couldn't just use that dove, you had to use their dove. So they're making bank on the people as they're coming here. And that's why he talks about, you've made it a den of thieves. And so in Isaiah chapter 56, starting at verse 3, let the foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenants. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners, there they are again, who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, Jesus is quoting Isaiah in this passage and saying, 
I have set this place aside so that the foreigners, so that those who have been discredited have a place. And it is as good as sons and daughters that they could come to this place and they could worship God because my house will be known as a house of prayer. And instead, this place has been used to make money. The foreigners have been ousted. There is no place for them. There is no place for those who are sick and weakly discredited. And so they have nowhere to worship because God had intended this for those who were outside. There's another passage equal to this. I've shared this one many times. You guys should mark it because I'm going to always go here. First Kings chapter 8, it says, verse 41, as for the foreigner, this is when Solomon is dedicating the temple, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Solomon says, God, when the stranger, the foreigner, the one who does not belong to this covenant comes to this place, answer their prayer so that they might know you. Isaiah says, this place is dedicated for those who are foreigners, those who are outside, those who are looking to find you. Let them find you. May this be a pillar where they cry out to you, you hear and you answer. Because that is your posture that is the perspective and instead they have made this place for gaining wealth to themselves you see what gets god upset is when people use his name for their own benefit and hinder those who really want to know him from coming to know him that ticks him off and he is furious And he has no problem throwing the tables and causing commotion. And what is amazing is these kids are more in touch with what really is happening than the religious leaders. Because they start singing. They start worshiping. They start dancing around, chasing all the doves that are flying around, going on, and Jesus is just saying, that's better. That's better. And you see, what God is angry at is those who would hinder people from coming to the truth of who he is. Those who would set up obstacles to getting to God. I've heard it in my mind and it was in it was just etched in there from a few passages of scripture. And again, that perspective means everything. That said that God doesn't hear the sinner. Oh, you don't believe in Christ? God doesn't hear you. What about these passages where the foreigner is going to find out? What about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? What about all those times where those people who were outside 
of the knowledge and covenant of God called out to him and he heard them and answered their prayers in so many ways. But you see, if I've got it in my mind, nope, if you're outside of the family, you don't get to get the ear of the Father. Is that the perspective? And Jesus gets furious if you make anyone think that they are not able to come to him. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, I will give you rest. And so God is opening his arms and saying, I'm here, call on my name so I can answer and prove myself to you. I've shared the time when my brother, who wasn't a follower of Christ, and I had been sharing with him, and one day he had some money, he had a $100 bill, and he lost it. And he didn't know where it was, and he searched his one-room house up and down. He turned over every cushion, everything, because a hundred bucks was a lot of money. It is still, but it was even more back then. And all this sharing going on with him, he finally said, okay, God, I don't know if you're real or not, but if you're real, let me find that hundred dollars. And he looked, and on the coffee table was the hundred dollar bill. And then he went out and bought drugs. Oh, that can't be God. It was the beginning. He's now serving the Lord. And God said, I'll answer your prayer. Yeah, I'm not going to have anything to do with you buying drugs, but I will reach you right where you're at. I will reveal myself to you because I am trying to get you to me. And so God is always reaching. God is always trying. You cannot access God without us. That's baloney. Perhaps true worship is actually achieved when we bring in the outsider. And maybe we should think of that. We've made worship so much about ourselves. The glory of God, I just felt it. I felt so good. Well, maybe really when the glory of God is evident is when we bring those who are outside inside with us. When we bring those who've been outcast into this place. Maybe that's really what inspires the heart of God to sing and say, Hosanna, save now. Save now. Maybe we should be less about what makes me feel good and how I can reach the foreigner, the outsider, and bring them into an understanding of who you are. Okay, I'm running out of time. What about our distress? Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, starting at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but 
the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here come my betrayer. I think sometimes we segregate how we see Jesus. There's the human Jesus and there's the God kind of Jesus, you know, and it's not hard. It's like walk on water, that's the God Jesus. Feel, you know, feed the multitudes, that's the God Jesus. The sweating, that's the the human Jesus. The eating, that's the human Jesus. And we have this way of kind of, oh yeah, that's the man Jesus and there's the God Jesus. And I don't think we look at a circumstance where Jesus cries out, and says, I am sorry, I am filled with sorrow beyond, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't think we think of that as being the God Jesus. We don't think of that as divine, but you see, God and Jesus were never separated. God was always being manifested through the person of Jesus and the things that he did. And so what can we learn about God in this moment, I I think is telling, and I think it's important. And it's that God does have burdens. That he does experience sorrow. The scriptures tell us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And that concept should trouble us, that I can actually cause grief, emotional hurt, to God. And and when we see Jesus moved with sorrow to the point of despair, I think we should get insight into the heart of God. That we would recognize that the reason we love is because we've been created in God's image and God is love because God does love. The, The reason maybe... We are compassionate is because God is compassionate. And maybe we are more like God than we fully understand. Maybe sorrow is actually an attribute of God that we haven't fully recognized. And we tend to think of it as a weakness, but it's actually part of who God is. That God is moved to the point where he has sorrow, where Jesus did weep. And you think of God weeping, and that makes us a little uncomfortable. I don't want a God who who gets distressed. I want him to be there when I get distressed. I don't want him getting distressed. That makes me uncomfortable. If God gets distressed, what do I do? You need to be stable. You need to be the solid rock I just go to. But maybe we're just not seeing things clearly. Maybe we don't understand. You see... We experience these things throughout our life. Again, as a parent, when your kids go through something, it grips you. It it takes hold of your heart. And it'll 
make you sick. I got a phone call last night from one of my boys. And he was by himself at the time and going through some situations. And he called me and, you know, always, okay, he's calling me, wondering what's going on. As a parent, I automatically go, what's wrong? You know, I don't say that, but I think that. Like, why are you calling me? Everything okay? You know, you need money? What? You know, at least it wasn't, Dad, can you bail me out? You know, it wasn't something like that. It was just calling. And then he started talking. He goes, Dad, I feel sad. I, I don't have joy. And I have God, but I just don't feel joy. And to hear sorrow in your son's voice, I just wanted to break down weeping. And I'm studying this passage, and I'm talking to my son. I said, son, it's okay. You can have God and not have that joy all the time. In fact, sometimes that's how God feels. And as I'm talking to him and we have this conversation, it goes on. I tell him I love him. He tells me he loves me. And it was a good conversation. I get a text from him this morning. He said, at church, they're talking about joy. I said, son, that's for you. He goes, I know. I know. You see, nobody cares more than God. Nobody hurts more than God. Nobody experiences betrayal more profoundly than God. No one weeps more than God. And we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with our weaknesses but in every way was tempted but without sin. And in this moment, Jesus is telling you, is telling me, I care more than you know. I hurt more than you can imagine. Imagine there's over 6 billion people in this world. And as I feel for my own son when he calls me and I hear his voice and I just want to do all that I can, God feels for every person and every brokenness that they are going through. You, myself, everyone, more profoundly than we understand, it would destroy us if we had a glimpse and understanding of how much God hurts, how much God cares, how much God fully understands exactly where you are at and what you are going through. But he does. He does. Jesus is God so that you and I can understand how much God loves how much he loves you how much he loves me how much he cares again I I mentioned it just in passing last week God didn't create you just for you to give him glory 
God created you for fellowship because he loves you. Because his heart cares for you. He created you and he's given you the freedom because relationship without freedom doesn't exist. And so God became man so that in our language we could understand how much God really loves. God is love. How do I know? Look at Jesus. For the joy set before him, that relationship with us, he went to the cross. And he entrusted himself to the disciples. I mean, right before Jesus goes and prays, he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Bam! Slams him. In front of the disciples, everything. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. I'll never deny you, Lord. I'd rather die. And everyone, yeah, me too, Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, even knowing that Peter was going to deny him, he says, come with me. And he invites him into this inner circle to be part of this intimate moment with him. And then Peter falls asleep. You know why Peter fell asleep? Because he wasn't connected to the pain that Jesus was going through. When you're connected to the pain, you don't go to sleep. It keeps you awake. But Jesus still invited him in. What will you do when God invites you into his presence? What will we do with that invitation? How will we respond to a God who cares and invites us to be close? Will we break his heart? Because we can. And he's inviting us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if it wasn't for you, our idea of God would be so wrong. It would be so distant and detached. It would be so religious. It would be so about our effort, our works, our living good enough. If it wasn't for you, we would never understand that it's really about how much you love, how much you care, how much you're concerned. Our idea of you would not be that of a loving heavenly father. It would be that of every other religion. You would be distant. You would be unattainable. There would be no way we could understand you or what you care about. But in you, Jesus, God is speaking our language and we can hear and we can understand and we have the opportunity to respond. And I pray this morning that we would respond, that we would recognize your love and we would surrender and 
in our own freedom return love to you. That we would not want to break your heart. That we would not want to distance ourselves. That we would not want to betray your trust. That we would not want to grieve you. That we would not want to wander away. That we can come to you right now where we are, not be condemned, but you have dealt with our condemnation and you have made the way for us into your presence. Lord, with that amazing example, we are humbled, we are grateful. Lord, our hearts are overwhelmed and we want to respond. We want to be people that you can call in close. We want you to be able to trust us with your heart, Jesus. God, that we even want that is amazing. Thank you for your amazing love, for the understanding of who you are. We are grateful. May we respond to your love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.